you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Of course you wanted to see this person, you know, this just this injustice corrected, but I wasn't aiming at, at any point for the series for particular results. I mean, I was happy that I got them, but again, I think that what I try to hew very closely to is, is tell the truth. And that's it. I mean, that is my job. And if I can present it in a way that is fair and that, I mean, it's truthful, there was no other choice what to do. You may remember our recent podcast with Ralph Engelman talking about the 2018 Polk Awards. This week, we're joined by one of the Polk Award winners. Melissa Segura of BuzzFeed won the local reporting award for her investigation into the practices of a Chicago detective who was playing fast and loose with the facts. His actions sent innocent people to prison for decades. People who Segura's work helped free. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about your investigative work, but uh, you actually started out in sports. So let's start there. How did you go from a, becoming a sports reporter to being an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed? I spent 12 years at Sports Illustrated, started as an intern, and then I just kept working my way up. And I get a lot of people who are super curious about the transition, thinking that these two th- sort of moving from, say, police reporting or mm-hmm. sports reporting to police reporting is, is unusual. And, and I actually, maybe because I lived it, <laughs> I'm not as interested in it because the reporting is a reporting. And I, I knew about as much about police work as I did about baseball when I first started as a major league baseball reporter and you just sort of learn it. But um, growing up in my household, I have an older brother who is now a high school basketball coach. And ESPN was always on our TV screen. I wanted to watch Saved by the Bell. He wanted to watch ESPN. And at the time, there was an interview show with a terrific interviewer by the name of Roy Firestone. And so after school, he was bigger than me. And he, of course, could outmuscle me for the remote control. So just by osmosis, I sort of acquired, sometimes against my will, an inordinate amount of sports knowledge. So when I started practicing journalism, when, when I was in college, I became particularly interested in narrative journalism. And I had come across the work of a guy named Gary Smith, who was a, who at the time was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. It had just done these absolutely magnificent long form pieces using sports sort of as a prism to examine much larger social issues. For example, I think one of the first pieces I read of his was a piece called Crime and Punishment that looked at a high school basketball recruit who had been accused of I think sexually assaulting a young woman who was disabled in a hallway in New York City. He happened to be, you know, the best high school basketball prospect, I think, in the country at that particular time. He served his time. He did everything he was supposed to. And then all of a sudden, when it came time for for colleges to recruit him and offer scholarships, there was a lot of backlash and he basically lost all of his offers. And it was this very sort of public shaming for every university that would offer this boy a scholarship, even though he had sort of fulfilled, uh, you know, technically fulfilled that debt to society. And it was just this incredibly human and deep piece and had me looking at other things that he was doing and other things that Sports Illustrated was doing. And so I as a college uh, student, um, had sort of reverse engineered how in the world I would get myself into Sports Illustrated. Um, and it just so happened that 
I applied for a fellowship through the Association for Women in Sports Media. Um, I started writing sports at my local high school, uh, my local paper. So I had some clips to be able to send off and got an internship and then just worked really hard and broke some stories for them as an intern and made sure that they couldn't send me away. <laughs> That's <laughs> sort of the very long story of it. But yeah, I just liked that sports, mostly what I liked was that sports offered up this this unique prism through which to sort of view larger issues. And I think what was particularly appealing is, is that it was a way of engaging particularly young men who weren't necessarily reading the newspaper, um, but particularly young men of color who might not necessarily be interested in reading like A1 of the New York Times, but they might be interested in reading something about LeBron James or Colin Kaepernick. And I just think that sports sort of offers a, a safe space for people to sort of have a little a little room to breathe when looking at at some very difficult topics. So that's why I went that way. Yeah, well, I didn't want to give you the impression that um, I somehow thought that <laughs> that sports was was less serious. We actually, you know, just this week we posted a podcast. I did an interview with uh, Tim Graham of the, the Buffalo News. You know, he's written really serious pieces about you know CTE in the in the NFL and other stories like that. And, and we actually had a conversation where we were talking about the fact that this thing that you said that you know sports is is a platform is where people can view these bigger stories in a different context and, and therefore make it easier for them to digest and maybe even make it easier to change people's minds by Absolutely. presenting yeah. these facts in a, in a different, different arena. And the fact is, is, you know, the, some of the stories that you wrote for sports illustrated, you know, showed a, you know, investigative reporters take on them. You know, I'm thinking of one that you did with little league baseball championships where you, you revealed that one of the, the star players was actually older than, than was allowed. And then you also wrote about NFL wives and girlfriends, which, you know, a lot of people think, oh, that's just a pretty light sort of, you know, featurey story. But, you know, these were women who were dealing with husbands who had, uh, you know, brain injuries and other types of injuries and how that sort of affected their lives. So, yes, there's sort of depth in this type of arena. So can you tell me about those types of stories, about how you sort of approach them? Sure. I think, um, well, so let me give you an example. Like I got an email from a young woman who is in college. Uh, she's at the University of Missouri, you know, a terrific journalism program. And she says, Hey, I want to do what you did. And I want to write like human, I want to bring human elements to sports stories. And I thought mm -hmm. they're already there. Well, <laughs> It's been actually like a very difficult exercise for me to craft a response to her because my feeling is, is like, this isn't an angle that I try to shoehorn into a story. This is like a, a way that it's a worldview. It's a way in which I just happen to see the world and the very best sort of humanist sports writers out there. I think the ones who really get you know, to the meat of what it, I mean, really a lot of times what we're asking is sort of like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean? You know, what are, what are the elements of forgiveness and punishment? I mean, like sort of very philosophical questions. I think that the best stories in some way are always trying to answer. And I think, um, everyone who I've met, whether that be Gary Smith again, who was sort of the person who, whose work I most admired or, as he's byline SL Price, who I worked with, or or Rick Riley, who you know, at a, when he was writing columns, had like incredible emotional depth to to a lot of what he was writing. And 
the thing that I think that is, they're all very different writers. They're all very different reporters, but I think what's sort of the commonality between all of them, is they're all pretty good people. You know, this isn't just something that they exercise as journalists. And this is something, you know, they're involved in their communities. You know, they, they care about the little person and not just like when it's convenient, when they need them to, to sit and answer questions. And this is very much a way in which they see the world. I, I don't think that it's actually an accident that, I mean, I think about like somebody like Eli Saslow, who's arguably like one of the very best reporters working today. And he came through sports as well. I mean, he did a lot of sports reporting and he still does, I think with ESPN. And I think what sports actually trains you to do is it's actually a hyper competitive environment because everybody might be at the same game, right? And that press box might be full of, you know, 40 or 50 other reporters who have just seen the same event as you have. But there's a natural sort of structure where there's winner and loser. The games themselves like automatically sort of lend a narrative structure to them. And it's up to you to be able to find sort of the most human elements, the drama behind that. And so I think that just like the structure of the game, you know, sort of trains you in a certain sense to, um, to look out and to always try to find what, you know, the depth, um, something else that somebody that someone else in the press box didn't see. So I think that sports is a really good training ground for it. And I think a lot of times, like some of the best writing is still sports writing, just because it is a little bit more forgiving in terms of its narrative flexibility. I mean, I understand that when you're writing something about like what's happening between, I don't know, President Trump and Jeff Sessions, uh, you might not be afforded, you know, flowery language for very practical reasons. But when you're writing about, you know, I just saw a story about a Chicago White Sox prospect whose sister was killed in Las Vegas uh, shooting earlier this last year or late last year. So, so yeah, so this Chicago White Sox prospect had lost a sister in this Las Vegas shooting and there's an opportunity there to be able to talk about something that's very sensitive, but have a little bit more freedom of language than if you were writing exclusively about like leaks at the NSA. So I think that, you know, for those reasons, it's a really good training ground. And I get what you're saying, because, you know, the question that somebody comes up to ask you and says, well, I want to write this type of story that I mean, the fact is, you know, a good story is a good story. Quite often, the you know the best stories are those that that come from within you. I mean, looking at, at who you are and what you value and then recognize, recognizing those things. It's the things that spark, you know, you deeply are the things you can write deeply about. At least that's, that's been my experience. Feel yeah, what piques your curiosity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's move out of the sports arena. Okay, sure. Um, tell me about the move to BuzzFeed. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people, and I don't necessarily think this, but, you know, a lot of people may be surprised that, that BuzzFeed does investigative reporting. It, it doesn't give that impression that would be something they would do. But yet they did this and they've done other stuff. You know, the story we're talking about, Chicago police detective Rinaldo Guevara. It actually came about when I was at Sports Illustrated. I think it was about 2012. And I was particularly, I've always been interested in the justice system in general, but I had seen a story about a man by the name of Brian Banks. He had been sort of a tremendous, he was a blue chip football prospect. And he already had a scholarship to USC, which at that time was a preeminent college football program. His life Seem, I mean, he seemed like destined sort of on a rocket ship for an NFL roster and to be a pro bowler. I mean, he just, 
everything seemed to be lining up in his favor. I mean, he just was a prodigious talent. And then all of a sudden, um, that comes to a screeching halt when a classmate accuses him of raping her in a stairwell at school. And Mr. Banks had looked at the time, he was only 16 years old, but he was still 6'4", and I think about 240 pounds. And as he stood before a judge, it had been, become perfectly clear to him that because of his size, because he was you know, this huge black kid, that he was facing 40 years in prison for a, a rape that he did not commit. But he looked at sort of um, <laughs> at he, the way he that he was the, being leveraged. He, fit, he fit, fit the profile is what you're saying. Well, he fit the stereotype, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. And he looked at this and he was facing 40 years. He had sworn that he didn't do it. His mother, who was a school teacher, had mortgaged her home. They had leveraged their entire lives to fight this case. And the math, though, because of you know the overaggressive prosecution in this particular case, he was looking at 40 years if he were to go to trial or he could take five years and be out and try to rebuild his life. Well, the calculus on this, I don't think anybody even people were like, well, how could you ever admit to doing something that you didn't do? Well, if you're him, I think that it's, it's easy to understand why you would do that. I mean, this is the way that plea bargaining in in America actually works. Like, I think it's like 98% of cases are pleaded out rather than, you know, what you see on law and order with these fancy trials that rarely happens. So anyway, so I was, I was talking to his attorney about this particular case and we were talking about the plea bargaining system and this, his attorney from the California Innocence Project, a man by the name of Justin Brooks had said, well, let me give you an example. I've been working on a case out of Chicago and this was pro bono. I mean, this was on his own time, on his own dime. He was flying from his home in San Diego back to Chicago frequently to meet with a client who had accepted a plea deal in a case which he was convinced she did not kill either of the men in this particular case. And she pleaded out, but she still got the death penalty. Wow. And it was a particularly, I was like, well, what was the plea? What did she give up? And, and um, Mr. Brooks at the time was like, exactly, what did she give up? It was a particularly interesting case. But I think besides the facts of the case, I was curious and at this point a little naive as to how long it would take to overturn a wrongful conviction. And I thought, what in the world would drive a man to work for free for 20 years? I mean, it was, that, that's what stuck with me for 20 years on a case. And so fast forward to 2014, it was a question that still sort of lingered with me. Um, and I was being laid off from Sports Illustrated at that particular time. I was planning on going to law school. I had my applications in was ready to go. Um, but I still had, I think a year's time to fill before the semester started. So I was working, you know, a job with a city agency, uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I lived. And I happened to be like scrolling through Twitter one day and I had seen a tweet advertising that Buzzfeed was offering a fellowship. It was a diversity fellowship in conjunction with Columbia university. So I took the opportunity. I filled out the application and I said, Hey, I'd rather do this then work, you know, at this sort of bureaucratic job for the next year. I thought it would be more fulfilling. And I thought, well, they were looking for investigative project proposals. And I remembered, again, what would cause a man <laughs> to seek out and like dedicate himself for 20 years to a woman. And I thought, well, maybe if I present this case, it sounds interesting. There we go. 
And what I didn't know at the time is that one of the detectives on this particular case was Ronaldo Guevara. And I also didn't know at the time that Guevara would be linked to at least 56 other, or to at least 50, I'm sorry, 55 other cases, not including the one that Mr. Brooks had presented to me. I too didn't know what BuzzFeed was doing. I didn't know anything about their investigative efforts. But what I found was was surprising and, and as a journalist, particularly coming off a layoff, refreshing. Here was a digital company that was sort of allowed you to create your own experience. And they had uh, Mark Schuf's, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner. He'd worked at the Wall Street Journal for a number of years. And he had come over specifically at ProPublica. He was, you know, he's been at all, like all the major sort of places. And he'd come over and said, hey, let me build this from scratch. Let me build this team. And slowly we've grown. We're about 20 reporters, I'd say. And we're all interested in different areas. You know, for me, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in the vulnerable and the overlooked. But we have incredible reporters who are looking at the powerful and mighty sort of everywhere in between. And, and I think we're doing some of the most competitive investigative work out there. And it's funny because, yes, sometimes at the bottom of the page, it will be a quiz on which Disney princess are you based on the selection of kitchens that you might pictures of kitchens that you might like. But if that funds the work, I'm all for it. Yeah. Bravo. I mean, yeah, of course. So you say that the BuzzFeed sort of allowed you to sort of design this, your role there, your, you know, your approach. What did that sort of morph into for you? What was, you know, you know, how did you, I guess, actualize this and then turn this into this project? What I will say is, and this is a great thing, I come from a legacy, you know, Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated were a legacy institution. So there were very a sort of specific norms, I think, that were set. And, and this was sort of the most amazing and somewhat disorienting experience for me when I went to BuzzFeed. And I was given as much leash as I needed to do whatever it took to get this particular project. And at the time when I walked into BuzzFeed, the very first day, I thought I was writing about this one particular case. I didn't know anything about a pattern and practice of misconduct, of alleged misconduct at this particular, by this particular detective. So what they allowed me, I think for the first five months, I did nothing but read files because I just kept gathering string and there was another case and there was another case and there was another case until, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing at the time, but I started spreadsheeting a lot of the cases until I, you know, and, and trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's the commonalities between these? What are the differences? Are these, the first question, of course, I was trying to ask is, is this credible? Um, Is there a reason to believe um, all of these people? Is there some reason to believe that it's not true? And this is some sort of conspiracy that was cooked up behind bars. I mean, I mean, the first few months, we're just trying to figure out, hey, is this true? And once I did that, they gave me the resources. I moved to Chicago for six months and I worked every single day around the clock um, because, you know, it's very expensive to just move someplace and just knocked on doors and interviewed folks and started to realize that this pattern indeed seemed credible. There were reasons to believe the allegations of misconduct in many of the cases. And so they just allowed me I mean, I checked in like with weekly memos, more or less, Mm -hmm. but under the leadership, particularly of Mark, and then he had assigned me a direct editor, Jessica Garrison, formerly of the Los Angeles Times. And Jessica became sort of my lifeblood. She would check in with me, you know, a couple times a week and just said, hey, how's this going? 
And I think everybody at the office was astonished just sort of at the magnitude of this project. And I think the greatest gift that they gave me is they gave me time. I mean, more so than the the resources to travel to Chicago. I mean, I would have found a way. I would have found a way to work around the telephone and that kind of thing. But really what they afforded me was time. And remember, I was brought in as a fellow. I had a one-year deal with them, and then this turned into – you know, now a three-year, <laughs> three-year project, just based on the scope and the number of cases and sort of, you know, all the investigating that needed to be done. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, in any no, way. you did. <laughs> now you gave me, you opened up a lot of different ideas and things I wanted to ask you about. You know, reading the the, the full article, I mean, it reminded me quite a lot of these sort of long form investigative pieces that you'd see in in some magazines you'd see in like alt press papers about you know city corruption or something like that there's so much depth in your your story your your main story but also your follow-up stories and lots of different perspectives as well you have the the documents you have tons and tons of interviews you have interviews with family members and, and victims you know the the scope of it is amazingly impressive. But then the fact that you're able to sort of get your arms around it, because that's the thing is you're sort of describing this is, is you're amassing all of this information and trying to verify things that are true and following a one thread to another thread is like, you know, how do you turn this into a story? I mean, at what point did you, did you go, okay, I think I've got a handle on this. You know, how do I, how do I assemble this into a, a workable piece of narrative? <laughs> Uh, that's funny because I'll tell you, it was not like a glamorous or graceful process by any means. Actually, my editors were the ones who stopped me. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd still be in Chicago and I'd still be knocking on doors because I still don't think that, um, I mean, as much as I appreciate, like, you know, people feeling that this is, this is deeply reported. I still feel that there are about a million unanswered questions, um, that will drive me crazy until the day I die. So my editors basically said, no, 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 you're going to stop and you're going to write. And I'll tell you, and I think that this is, I just tell everybody this because I think that there is this, there's this tendency, I think, just as humans that we have to compare like our, our first drafts to other people's final drafts. (laughs) And that would happen to me all the time as I had read something by Pamela Calaf, you know, formerly of Texas Monthly, now at the New York Times and be like, geez. I am such a failure. There is no way I could ever craft anything even close to that as I was trying to work my way through a draft. And the first draft that I turned in was just God awful. It was unpublishable. (laughs) It was trying to like weave all of these crazy threads together and it absolutely did not work. It was, I'm, you know, Buzzfeed would have had every right to have fired me on the spot based on that particular draft. But what they did, and this is, Really, much of this project, you know, is due to Jessica Garrison and Mark Schufs and Ariel Kaminer, who were like the three main editors on the project. And what it was is they saw that I just had so much material. Right. And they did what the best editors did. And they said, okay, we need to just, we need to break this down for you. And what they did, which was highly unusual, is they had me write, you know, they were familiar with my memos and my dispatches, you know, throughout the two years of reporting is they sent me to write five different stories that focused, each story focused on a different case. Well, actually they assigned me to write four and I said, no, 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 I need to write about this kid named Roberto Almodovar who became you know, the, the first story that we ran. I said, I, I just, in my bones, I feel that he's a really good story to tell. And they said, okay, 
great. Uh, you want to do more work? Go for it. And so over the course of three months, I wrote 60,000 words. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Combined between the five stories. I wrote Roberto first. Um, because again, there was just from the moment I read his case file, I just, I felt that there was something that could connect with the audience, that he was a character that could sort of take us from the question of, is he guilty or is he innocent to the question that I really wanted to ask is what is going on with the Chicago justice system that innocent people are systemically by one person being sent to prison for decades and decades. Um, I didn't want people to be wondering, you know, in the same way that making a murder, I think that story was a little bit hijacked by, you know, is Stephen Avery guilty or innocent? I mean, which is a great conversation, you know, piece. It makes your story viral, all these questions. That's not the story I wanted readers to walk away from. So we were looking for a clean hit was sort of the phrasing that we were looking for. And I thought that that Roberto's story, because I was dealing with with men who had criminal backgrounds and who did have past gang affiliations. And sometimes I, I realized that for a lot of people that would be difficult to find them protagonists, you know, for whom they would, they would want to continue reading about those particular people. But Roberto was a guy who was, who did, you know, he did have a gang past who did, you know, have a little bit of a rap sheet, but nothing, you know, they're all misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy who was a young father who was working, you know, 12 hours a day, cleaning toilets at a factory, and then going and taking like a three hour, you know, each night GED course. He was somebody who was sort of like that bootstraps character. I think that those were the virtues I saw in that particular story. And also there was clear documented evidence that it would have been impossible for him to be the perpetrator of this crime. So we looked at, you know, each of these stories we picked for different reasons. And I thought, well, we might run some of them, but really the idea from Mark Schoofs, the editor was, Hey, why don't we braid these stories together? So you're going to write them and then we're going to braid them together. But when we step back again, you know, sort of the wisdom of the editors, we, we decided we were going to toss, I think three of them. And then we're going to look at two but then as we started working our way through, we thought, hey, this isn't working either. And then that's what ended up, uh, Roberto's story is, is sort of what you see of, of the very first piece that I'd written. And how long was that piece? How many words? When I filed it, at first it was 20,000 and it ran at about 12,000. Yeah, it, it's still a hefty read, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, again, mm -hmm. th these are things that have a lot of depth to them. There's a lot of different angles and you get a real sense of of the victim. What's great about this type of writing, this type of reporting, is that you know it's very human focused. You see those people, those characters, and they're the, they're the ones who kind of that the the reader is able to you know sympathize with and identify with and 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 want to see where that person goes. I mean that's that's the thing I I took away when I when I read it. You know, one of the things about investigative journalism is it's not so much just a report, but you want to sort of affect change. You, you sort of alluded to the fact about, you know, what was going on with the, the Chicago police. Was was that ever conscious, you know, something that was driving you as you were writing this, that you wanted not just to report this, but to, in your reporting, maybe change something? Uh, the short answer is no. I remember when I interviewed for the fellowship, one of the questions that was asked to me is, well, what impact do you want this work to have? And I am so old school that for me, my answer was the only thing I want to do is tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, because I am 
afraid of being agenda driven or results driven. I think that in some ways that can, you know, distort the reporting and I didn't want that to happen. I mean, clearly after spending so much time reporting the story, I saw an innocent man who was sitting in prison for the rest. I mean, according to the court system for the rest of his life, of course, after, you know, you know, nine, 10 months in to the reporting, of course you wanted to see this person, you know, this just, this injustice corrected, but I wasn't aiming at, at any point for the series for particular results. I mean, I was happy that I got them, but again, I think that what I try to hew very closely to is, is tell the truth. And that's it. I mean, that is my job. And if I can present it in a way that is fair and that, I mean, that's truthful, I think, you know, there was no other choice what to do with Roberto, who was, who was released 10 days after the story ran, or any of the six other men who have come home since publication of this series. Yeah, sometimes really all you can do is your job and make sure that you do it well and hope maybe that something comes out of it. And it's fortunate that through your reporting, some people's lives have benefited. And one would hope that that people, uh, you know, as the larger story behind all this is revealed, that, that people begin to question what's going on in the criminal justice system in Chicago, if they haven't already started questioning and that's hopefully where where maybe change can occur. Not so much that you're advocating for something, but through just you doing your job well, it raises awareness and motivates people to to take action. So, is there something that you took out of it, out of this whole project? You know, what is the thing? You know, if you if you step back and you ask yourself, what's the one thing that that you take away from it that you're particularly proud of or particularly affected by? Having just given my previous answer that the, I I wasn't seeking a particular result, but... Uh, well, but now we're on the other side of the fence. <laughs> now we're on the other side of it. And we're looking and, back and you say, you know, I spent two years of my life doing this and I'm mm-hmm. glad I did it because of this. So what's, I mean, what's the answer to that? Really, I can tell you, um, I would stay with a friend of mine. She was gracious enough to host me a lot of times. And I would drive down I-90 to go to the courthouse, which is practically on the other side of Chicago. And anybody who's spent any time in Chicago knows that I-90 in the morning to get across town is a nightmare. But on this particular day, it was April 14th, 2017. It was Good Friday. And Chicago is a holy, you know, I mean, is definitely probably yes. the seat of, of American Catholicism. And a lot of people were home. And it's usually, it may have been cold and dreary most of that week. And all of a sudden I'm driving down. There's very little traffic. The sun is shining and I'm driving, you know, like, it's like, it's almost like the seeds have kind of parted as I'm heading to the courthouse, knowing that the fruits of this particular work, you know, I'd given up, I'd, I'd moved. I just, you know, and when I moved out there, I had, I thought I was going for four days and I lived off like the same clothes and, you know, all of these, you know. And I was just so moved by what had happened that a family was going to be a family again because of the power of the written word, you know, and it wasn't only sort of his release, but I mean, I thought I was done with journalism. I mean, my, my parting with Sports Illustrated was incredibly painful. And I mean, I seriously thought I was going to be practicing law, you know, by this time next year. 
and both of us, like in a certain sense, were, you know, reclaimed. I mean, his much more dramatically than mine. And I thought about, you know, the struggles that um, the particular individual at the heart of my story, Roberto, had been through. But I also thought, you know, it hadn't been an easy road for me either. You know, both losing my job at SI and then, you know, struggling through so many drafts and not feeling that any of them were good enough. And then having the sun shine. I mean, I, w- I was a little bit of a blubbering mess on the way to the courthouse <laughs> that particular morning. It was this beautiful moment to kind of just be alone in the car and and feel sort of like the sun on my face after all you know, this, this incredibly long and arduous journey. So that was the moment. So what, what's next for you? Are you, have you already started another project? Or are you are you still working for Buzzfeed? Mm-hmm. Um, Buzzfeed was generous enough to bring me on staff after this fellowship. And they did that, you know, and I had to decide whether I was going to go to law school. I had a scholarship to, to go to Cornell law or whether I was going to stay at Buzzfeed. But for me, the question that I was trying to address when I was trying to make that very difficult decision was I knew that as a lawyer, I was interested in, in fighting for justice for those who'd been deprived of it for so long. I was interested in that. But as a journalist, I was, I was trying to answer those same questions, but as a lawyer, I'd be working sort of individually like mano a mano with people versus the journalism, which I thought I could address systemic questions so that's why I ultimately opted to stay with BuzzFeed because I thought that they would afford me the time, space, and platforms to do that. And I haven't been disappointed so far. I will continue to do just a few more pro- uh, stories out of the Guevara, related to the Guevara cases. And then I have, you know, some ideas for an entirely new subject coming up that I don't want to say too much about at this sure. particular time. But yeah, it's a, it's also media and it, it deals with sort of some of the most di- disaffected and marginalized in our community at this time. Excellent. Excellent. I definitely look forward to that. And I'll make sure that there, there are links to these stories on our web article that will accompany this podcast. The one other thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, the reason we reach out to you is that you, you won a 2018 Polk Award for local reporting What's been the the reaction to to these stories? What do people come up and said to you? Assuming they because, come up and to say <laughs> to say things to you. Do you mean after the Polk or after publication? No, after publication. I mean, you're being recognized with the Polk Award, but you know what? What have people been saying to you? Let me think about that. Or or not at all. Maybe they haven't said anything. <laughs> you know, that's the funniest I mean, thing. I've I spent two years of my life on this, and nobody said anything about it. <laughs> no, no. Well, I also spent two years of my life with these families. Yeah. And at first, I mean, I will tell you, I was, I didn't care about any critical reception on the day of publication. I mean, I was hoping, I was like, can I get at least 60,000 people to read this story? And I mean, that was my goal. I was just like, oh, please, please just like, can I get 60,000? That's a pretty good, that's that's a pretty good level. Yeah. I was most I was most nervous, though. Um, I had sent the story to the ants who are sort of at the heart of the very first story that we run in this piece, who were, I think, objectively pretty heroic in their efforts to exonerate their, their nephew. And this was very much their story as well. And I was, I mean, I think as a reporter, and it's just as a, not as a reporter, as a human being, you're just like, oh my God, did I get it Right what did I mess up? Like you're just thinking and I'm terrified and I don't hear anything from them, you know, for several hours. And of course it's because they're reading 
And I think um, later in the day, I'm on pins and needles all day. And later in the day, I get a call from some of the sisters and they said, thank you because I no longer have to explain myself. I can just now tell, like when people want to know, I can just send them this story. Wow. And they felt that that had taken a gigantic burden off of them of always having to explain. There were people like in their workplace who were like, I am so sorry, I didn't know. A lot of the families, you know, honestly, for the first like two weeks that I started at BuzzFeed, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I was actually researching. I couldn't believe that Chicago media had not written this story. Wow. I mean, I just was like, I must be missing something. And it turns out that I was missing um, a piece and it was, it was a good piece from the Chicago reader who had written about 10 of these cases back in 2000. At the time it wasn't available online. So that's why I couldn't find it. But I was just shocked that there had been really no, very little wholesale uh, Mm -hmm. investigation of, of this gigantic problem. And it wasn't because these women who had organized, uh, there was a committee of women who had organized and would go regularly to police board meetings. Mm-hmm. They'd gone to the FBI. They'd gone to every official channel they possibly could have, and they had been ignored. And so with the publication of this piece, it was just some, I think that they felt validated in some way that their voices were actually being heard after 25 years in many mm-hmm. cases. I think they were treated as disposable for a long time. And, you know, I came to BuzzFeed on a diversity fellowship and it was because my, my boss, Mark Schoofs had been around enough investigative units and saw that they were predominantly white and they were predominantly male. And this was offering this particular scholarship was, I think, a small way of him trying to, um, to bring more people into the fold. And if I'm happy for the success, you know, sort of the critical success of this particular project, it's not because of like, I'm looking for any gold stars because I'm not. It's because I hope that it's instructive, I think, to other organizations moving forward, that bringing in other people, I mean, people from diverse backgrounds, isn't like just like a nice thing to do. You're not, it's not an act of generosity by any sense, but it's actually a necessity because this story had sat out there for more than two decades, almost three decades with nobody touching it because I don't think, you know, I'm Latina and I had some familiarity, maybe not specifically with their stories, but with culturally what was going on with them. And the fact that it was ignored for so long was breathtaking. I mean, gobsmacking like to me, I just, I didn't, I didn't understand how the story could have just been lying in wait for so long. And I just think that it took somebody who might've had a little bit more sort of cultural dexterity to be able to explore it and, and to understand why it was so important. So if anything, I hope that, that any sort of, you know, the Polk or whatever award it might be, I I'm grateful because I hope that it, it just gives platform to the work that this wasn't like a shortcut way for me to like get right. into journalism, but there's actually like a reason and that we have skills and I just didn't have the networks to, you know, to advance my career in any way. So I, I hope that that's, you know, that this fellowship is, is something that, you know, in the success of this project is something that might, you know, maybe prompt other news outlets to, to evaluate, Hey, are there non-traditional candidates that we might be, you know, that might have great value for us. So that's been great, you know, and I'm just trying to think of other reception that I got. I mean, I think what's also interesting is that BuzzFeed as you had said, you know, earlier in the podcast, isn't exactly known 
as a place for investigative journalism. And so I think when I was reporting these stories, when I was talking to, you know, city officials, that kind of thing, I, I'm not sure how seriously I was taken. And in some ways that was a terrific asset. And so, you know, because it just gave me the freedom to kind of go in and do my own thing. But, um, you know, City Hall hasn't said very much officially to me, either on or off the record. Not that I would say if they told me off the record anyway, but just, I mean, the, the families. And I've heard from inmates whose families have sent them the story. And even though their name isn't in the story per se, they know it, that story belongs to them as well. And it's just been, again, like a validating experience for them to be able to say, what's happened to me? Like, I'm not disposable. What happened to me mattered. And I think that for a long, this is the first time in a long time that they felt that. I think it's clear to repeat what you said, just this points as to why we need diverse newsrooms that, you know, here's somebody who comes in and, and exposes a different audience, tells a story from a different perspective, tells a story that's been ignored because there was nobody speaking for that, for that perspective. I mean, that's, that's why diversity is so important and, and needs to be implemented throughout the newsroom so that people are making decisions about the types of stories and recognizing that the audience is a lot different than just the, the old group of people who, who've always been covering the news. Melissa, this has been fascinating. Uh, I really, really enjoyed your, your, your work, really inspiring. I'm glad you're getting recognition from it, and not just from the awards, but certainly from the, the people that you, you help to um, you know, make their lives better, uh, to change their lives. I'm definitely going to be looking, uh, looking forward to the, the next stuff that you do at BuzzFeed. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thank you so much, and thanks for the attention to the work. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm going to be part of a panel on April 5th at Bus Boys and Poets in Washington, D.C., it's uh, a podcasting panel, a podcasting behind the mic guide to who, what, and where. It's presented by Humanities DC. You can find out more information about this event, this live event, at our website, itsalljournalism.com, and also on our Facebook page. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Agrisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content, Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.